This is Souls in Souls, a podcast for the spiritual but not religious and the religiously spiritual. I'm your host, Beth Hayward. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Tom Ord. And if you have wondered in your life why bad stuff happens and why God can't seem or doesn't wish to do anything about it, you'll want to tune in. Our guest will share his thoughts on why God can't actually fix the problems that we bump up against, but can invite us into an uncontrolling love that has the power to change your life. People who say, you know, I want a God who can single-handedly handedly rescue me from the crap I'm going through. I say, uh, how's that working out for you? <laughs> I'm in conversation today with Dr. Ch Thomas J. Ord, theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. Tom's the best-selling and award-winning author of many books, including The Uncontrolling Love of God and God Can't. He's the director of a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary and the Center for Open and Relational Theology. Tom's a dad and a grandfather, a lover of the natural world, and a really great photographer. Welcome, oh, Tom. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say so. Yeah, well, I've seen your work, but I want to start by going way back and uh, asking you about the the family and the geography that contributed to shaping you into mm. to someone who commits his life to thinking about deep and big and practical things. So tell <laughs> us, tell us about the people and places that loved you into being. Mm, that's a great question. I grew up in a little farming community. Uh, my mother gave us a book when we were kids each year you were supposed to put your picture you took in your class you know and then you added through the years and one of the questions each year was what do you want to be when you grow up mm -hmm. and my kindergarten year i said i wanted to be a dairy farmer when i grew up so i was thinking about <laughs> farming life because that's kind of what i grew up on my my father was actually a school teacher and then a counselor and in, in the local schools but uh, we had a part-time farm and so I had a very rural, agrarian life in a small town. Church was really important for my family. Uh, my parents were on the church board or the elders for more than 40 years, taught Sunday school, led music, youth groups. So our family life was oriented a lot around what was happening at the church. And um, my parents were better than average, probably parents, you know, no parents are perfect, but uh, they did a pretty good job. My dad was, he grew up uh, Dutch reformed and he became ecumenical as a young person because he's an excellent basketball player and all the churches wanted him to play on their team. So even though he grew up Dutch reformed, he didn't have like a strong Calvinist theology that he passed on. My mother was Pentecostal holiness. Mm -hmm. And that meant uh, she was into trying new things, uh, speaking in tongues, going to healing conferences. Uh, we had a vibrant piety in my home uh, growing up. And, um, you know, I gave my life to Jesus many times by the time <laughs> I graduated from high school. Um, so church, sports were big for me. Music was big for me. Uh, but it was not a city life it was a small out of the way little town in eastern washington state not of any importance 
but maybe one final thing I'll say mm -hmm. is that um, my parents not only encouraged us to take the Christian faith seriously, but also to take our studies seriously, to ask hard questions and to um, and not take easy answers. And I think that has stuck with me for most of my life. Well, thank you for that. That's a beautiful picture. So I'm going to ask you about the um, the being a, a farmer a little bit later. Okay. <laughs> the career that never happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, now um, I know that you are a, a very young grandfather. That you yes. have a, a, a granddaughter in your life, and I. I bet she has taught you a lot um, <laughs> about how the world works and what really matters. Do you have any stories to share of um, the influence she's had on your spirit? I think about my granddaughter and how she can go from just this melt your heart, you know, warm, affectionate daughter. I just, yeah, I just like to snuggle with mm. to someone who's very, you know, no, mine <laughs> very much uh not so warm and fuzzy <laughs> and um and how both of those have some legitimacy in the right context you know i don't want my granddaughter to be raised as a kind of pushover who's a doormat for men and everybody else in the world i want her to have a sense of respect and pride and and there's nothing wrong with a, a healthy self-interest um, on the other hand, of course, there are times in which we have to self-sacrifice because we live in community and we want the common good. So I think about those kinds of issues often when I'm with my, my granddaughter. Well, that's a lovely spin on, uh, you know, kid attitude and how <laughs> there can actually, um, it kind of gives permission to the rest of us too, right? For our, uh, our humanity. I think so. I remember as a <laughs> seminarian, I had a uh, a pro theology professor who used to say, you know, that doctrine of original sin is the most empirically verifiable of all the doctrines because look at a two-year-old. <laughs> and I remember thinking, you know, I think it's just quite natural to be selfish as a two-year-old. There's nothing wrong with that in a lot of instances. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not such empirically verifiable uh, doctrine after all. <laughs> I mean, not that I think humans are perfectly good and everything, but, mm -hmm. but there's something right, I think, at, uh, to have a self-interest in certain times and places. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. All right, I'm going to ease us into theology, but maybe through the back door here. I, okay. <laughs> um, I said you're a, you're a great photographer, and I always notice you. when you're posting pictures, generally um, of the beautiful geography where you live, you talk about making a picture, not taking a picture. And I'm pretty sure that's intentional. What, what does it mean for you to, to make uh, that art that you make? Yeah, um, I'm glad you're connecting that with theology because I like the, the language of being a created co-creator with the creator. <laughs> mm. I get a lot of word, create words in there. And that is, um, when I'm out hiking and um, experiencing nature and thinking photographically about uh, compositions, what the light is doing, what the wind is doing, um, I'm acting as an artist who is trying to uh, make something. In fact, maybe even a better word than make is I'm trying to feel my way toward some kind of experience that can be in some way represented by what my camera um, 
captures as I set it up on my tripod and think about all the factors. And um, I think that's what life is like. I have a strong belief that what we do with our lives matter and that it's not just God in the world doing everything and we're passive bystanders, that uh, we are really co-making reality with God and, um, and our decisions matter for, for good or ill. Um, and that plays out in how I do art as a photographer. You're trying to feel your way. Did you say, I, I mean, I just, yeah. oh my goodness, if we could feel our way in life a little bit more than we think it. And, and so curious to hear that from someone who spends so much time thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. And, uh, the, the feeling stuff in my life has come on so much stronger over the last decade or so. I remember coming to college and my sophomore theology teacher talked about setting aside your feelings. We need to think through the, the, the doctrines of the church. And I think what he had in mind was he was worried that we had come from churches in which it was all about having a particular experience. And if you didn't have that experience, well, you must not be right with God. You must not be you know, a good Christian. And he wanted to say there's more to that. But I tell you, feeling is just so prevalent in the way we live our lives. It's, I mean, right now, there's certain feeling tones going through me as we have this conversation, uh, aesthetic, emotional. Um, and so I think the emotional or feeling side of life is much greater and deeper and, and should be taken seriously theologically. Um, and I try to do that, although I'm sure I'm missing out on a lot. That's beautiful. Uh, so yeah, let's, let's take you to your head for a minute. Remi remembering okay. uh, that your, your heart does <laughs> seem to bring you there. Um, you've, um, you know, some of what you write, uh, what you think on and speak on would come across to some people as heretical or, uh, you know, at least new and quite unexpected. You talk about uh, God not having all the control. You talk about that idea that um, we can say God's all powerful, or we can say God's all powerful, but chooses not to use all that power. And, and you speak in a whole different direction than that. T tell us why and, and what exactly it is you say about the power of God. Yeah. I think God simply can't control others. And by others, I don't just mean creatures like you and me who I think have a degree of freedom, but can't even control animals, plants, cells, amoeba, corks. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't mean that this God is uninvolved in reality or, you know, sitting up on Mars, eating popcorn, watching us from a distance. Um, I think God is thoroughly involved in every aspect, at every level of our lives and all of reality, always present, always active, always calling, uh, persuading, wooing, etc., but never, ever in a controlling way. And uh, that does strike some people as heretical. <laughs> I've heard that word a few times. <laughs> Um, but there are so many reasons I think 
it makes sense to think about God primarily through the lens of love and understand God's power through that lens. Um, and probably the one that got me first thinking about the whole possibility that God can't control is the questions of suffering and unnecessary evil. And um, if you're like me and you think God loves at all times and places, but can't control anyone or anything, then you don't have to blame God for the crap that happens in your life and in the world and in your family. And, uh, you don't have to say God permitted that pointless pain. You can say God was present, working against it, didn't want it to happen. It happened and God couldn't have single-handedly stopped it. And at least in my way of thinking, that's a better way to think about God than the alternative. Yeah, and <laughs> <laughs> I walk with a lot of people who um, find themselves in those places of uh, things didn't turn out in life the way they ever would have hoped for. Yeah. Um, I find I go back to a sort of basic childhood place, or maybe it's not really childhood, but that whole idea of, I just need someone to make this better. I want a God with all the power um, to get me out of this terrible situation, to make the feelings less. Well, <laughs> is your God big enough? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to people who say, you know, I want a God who can single-handedly handedly rescue me from the crap I'm going through. I say, uh, well, how's that working out for you? <laughs> because uh, I don't know about you, but I've gone through some crap that I haven't been rescued from. Now, sometimes things do work out. I'm not saying the world is a horrible place all the time, but genuine evils happen. And um, I think it's better to think that God always works in situations and works with us in creation to try to, to, to squeeze some good out of the bad God didn't want in the first place. So it's not like God saying, I'm giving up on you. Things have gone south here. You deal with it. I think God's always there, always acting, trying to bring something good from it. But that's not quite the same as having an omnipotent God who reaches down and single-handedly grabs you from the clutches of evil. If God could do that, God's doing a pretty poor job of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it seemed to happen very often. <laughs> so one of the other thoughts that um, when I finally kind of got my head around it, I, I found quite uh, challenging, but also uh, life-changing. You talk about that you just can't buy the idea of God creating from nothing, mm. uh, which, which helped me to understand the kind of power you're talking about share with folks what how you came to that and why you think that's the case yeah it's uh, there's an ancient idea that arrived in about the second or third century from a couple of gnostics who claimed that god once existed absolutely all alone and then created the world out of absolute nothing the Latin term is creation ex nihilo, creatio ex nihilo. This is not an idea that's explicitly in the Bible, contrary to what a lot of people think. Um, and um, it's an idea that creates real problems for that issue of evil that we were just talking about. 
I mean, if God has the kind of power to bring something out of nothing, then why doesn't God, I don't know, instantaneously make brick walls to stop bullets when they're flying toward innocent people? Or, I mean, once you start going down that path of imagining all the possibilities, then it, it really becomes, it gets out of hand quickly. Mm. Um, so I think it makes better sense to say that God always creates and that love motivates God's creating. And every moment that God creates, and when I say every, I mean everlastingly every moment, mm. God always creates in relation to that which God previously created. So there was no absolute beginning of creating in which prior to that there was nothing. And, you know, once we start going down these these ideas, our head starts to <laughs> bubble up and blow up. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think that helps. I have a strong affinity for artists because I am one myself. And uh, artists never create out of absolute nothingness. There's always some materials of some kind. Maybe it's an idea they have and then they find certain things in their environment or uh, the, the, the objects and materials may be quite abstract, but uh, artists create in relation to something. And that, and that means that there are certain constraints and parameters that an artist has. Um, in fact, sometimes artists will limit themselves. Let's say a painter will limit themselves to four colors and they're going to paint something with four colors. And actually that limitation becomes uh, a spark toward novelty. Uh, creativity and ingenuity. Um, and I think if we think of God as having uh, always to work in relation with others, whether they're complex creatures like you and me or far less complex, I think that makes better sense out of how we understand creating an art more generally. Hmm. So when you talk, I mean, limitations, people can relate to that, right? I mean, the, the, the limitations because of life circumstance, because the cells have gone awry in our body, you name it. Yeah. Um, I think that resonates with people that, in fact, it is uh, from those places of struggle that somehow we find our way sometimes to possibilities that we wouldn't have been made aware of uh, if we were just going along the garden path. <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth in that. I, I want to avoid two kind of extremes. Yeah. This one extreme says, well, look, I've got these limitations. There's no hope for me. There's no possibility for something better. Mm. I reject that idea. I think God is always working, calling us to the best given what's possible. The other extreme says, I can do anything. I've got no limitations. You know, you sometimes get this from motivational speakers. All you got to do is try harder and get out there and you'll change your life overnight. And I just say, come on. now. That's not the way the world works. There's this happy medium between how our lives and choices really can make a difference for a better tomorrow, but also in a relational context with histories and limitations and and experiences that mean that not anything is possible, but something new, something better is possible, given where we're at in our lives. Is that where you find hope for 
the state of the world. Like <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, you know, we've gone through a wild four years here in the U.S. under the Trump administration. Boy, there were days when it was hard to feel hopeful about the future. Um, mm -hmm. And even if you like Trump, I'm sure that uh, you were days where you thought things were going bad and you wanted a, a better world. Um, in those kinds of days, you know, you start to wonder how was how are things going to get better? And I at least want to continually fall back on the idea that God always works, but you and I and others have a role to play if hope is going to become a reality. I like to say, hope is a verb, not a settled destination. And that helps me at least. Oh, yeah, I like that. I like that. <laughs> so let's just shift a bit from hope to love. And you use this word relation a lot. And I, I was really probably because it reflects my own story. I was drawn to a you know, a throwaway story that you've written about years ago when you served as a pastor in a church and people would come to the door and shake your hand and say, great job, great sermon, pastor. Uh, and you kind of brush them off or it was nothing or I didn't say everything I wanted to. Uh, and you talk about in those moments when someone gives to us their genuine appreciation. And I more than that, it's their genuine, you touched, you stirred my soul in some way. Mm. When we shut that down, we are cutting off their ability to, to give. Is that, tell me more or about that. It, or we're shutting <laughs> down the joy that they can experience in loving by encouraging us or showing their gratitude to its fullest extent. Mm. And, um, you know, I wanted to be humble, you know. I wanted to make sure I didn't get cocky when people said good things to me. And so I thought that being like Jesus meant deflecting all these compliments when they came. I'm not saying everyone complimented me, but, <laughs> but when they came, I thought that was the humble thing to do. And, and I realized, no, that's actually a form of love to receive the expressions of gratitude from others when they give it. And that, you know, I guess I earlier uh, talked a little bit about my granddaughter having a proper place for self-love, that uh, it's okay to find something valuable in yourself and when others note it and, and um, say something about it, to receive that and to be happy about that. Um, you can do that without becoming prideful and, you know, becoming stuck up. <laughs> Yeah, and it really speaks to that uh, that relational back and forth element of how uh, we are in the flow with one another. Um, we can so easily shut each other off, uh, and in fact, our own ability to to, <laughs> to take what we've received and have it uh, grow in love. So uh, yeah. yeah, and there's also another element that that. Um... It's sort of kind of standing back and being a little more abstract here. Mm -hmm. uh, this idea of receiving love in the sense of receiving information and relationship can actually then help me to be more effective in how I respond. Or maybe another way to put it is um, if I'm going to love others well, I really need to listen to them. <laughs> I, I remember when my, my wife and I, we first got married, uh, 
I'm a kind of person that when I get sick, just leave me alone. You know, don't touch me. I'm going to, you know, hunker down here. And it's going to be a few days and I'll come out of my bunker. Yeah. My wife is the type who wants to be doted on. She wants, you know, me to bring her things. Well, yeah. I assumed that she would be like me. And so when she got sick, I, okay, leaving you alone. Won't see you for a couple of days. Turns out that's not what she wanted. That the real expression of love on my part was to dote on her. And so me listening to her and finding out what she needed helped me to be more effective in my love for her during those times. And I think that's true generally in how we live our lives. If, if we're going to love each other well, we need to get to know each other pretty well. It makes me think, too, that the way we practice love, if you will, uh, on a daily basis with the people close enough to us, do, do you think that has an impact beyond our little circle of family? Do you think that uh, reverberates? Or am I being too... Uh... <laughs> I think it does, and, and mostly for good, but sometimes not so much. You know, Sometimes we think the rest of the world is like the people who are like us in our family. And it turns out that uh, there are other cultures, customs that other people have. And, and what works well for those near and dear to us don't necessarily work elsewhere. Um, so it's kind of a balance to figure out what kind of universal traits are there and what other traits are just uh, particular to certain people and places. I know that you, uh, you've already alluded to this, right? You've had some crap happen in your life. You've experienced some uh, struggles uh, like the rest of us. Uh, is the cost of your uh, ideas about God and trying to reshape in a really significant way what a whole lot of people think about how the world works? It, yeah. Is it worth it <laughs> is, mm. for the personal cost? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I guess in the sense of, is it worth it? That's kind of a secondary question for me. Because mm -hmm. uh, I think of it more as what's going to be helpful. Mm. And to say that God is not in control, that when we go through things in our life and people genuinely hurt us, that something happens to us that's not for our good, that uh, makes us worse instead of better. That um, believing that God is not in, a con in control in the sense of causing it or permitting it has helped me tremendously and helps many others. You know, we each have our struggles and they're unique. Um, but um, there's also something universal about being wronged and trying to figure out how to make sense of it. Um, one piece of it we've been talking about is where's God in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. Another piece of it is uh, what does it mean to forgive? Um, I, I, I've either been taught or at least I assume people were thinking uh, certain ways of understanding forgiveness that don't make sense to me anymore. I used to think that forgiveness meant you had warm fuzzies toward the person who hurt you. And I don't think that's the case. I used to think forgiveness meant that you were totally in a right relationship and everything was fine and dandy between the person who wronged you. And, and that's not, I don't think, a requirement for forgiveness. 
Um, I used to think that forgiving meant once I forgave, all of the negative emotions and negative memories would just dissipate. Well, I still deal with trauma as well as many, many people do. So forgiveness can't be that either. I think forgiveness fundamentally is uh, wanting the good for the others and oneself. And that may or may not mean having nice feelings toward them, <laughs> mm. ever seeing them again, being reconciled in some kind of right relationship. But um, forgiving in that sense is a lot better than growing bitter by harboring that pain, resentment toward someone. I think I oftentimes say, I forgive people who hurt me as much for my sake as for theirs. <laughs> so <'Cause> true. I, <laughs> I don't want to be a bitter person. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it cuts off your ability to uh, share <laughs> your light with yeah. the world. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. yeah. I, I said I'd go back to the the career you never had. But I, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm interested. I um. I don't know much about farms, but I did read recently how, I mean, milking cows is, is like an open and relational metaphor because cows don't just give their milk, right? Like there has to be this, this invitation. They will not give it uh, <laughs> unless you go asking. Um, so I guess, you know, my, my question is, um, do, do you, what have you found works? what resonates for people in terms of uh, this is how we continue to show up uh, inviting others to show up uh, and meet us face to face mm. with their true humanity. How, is there a way to do that? <laughs> mm. Mm, good question. We had a small farm, so we didn't have a lot of cows, but uh, the cows have to be milked. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And there's a number of ways to milk a cow. One of them is to walk in and start the job and not try to have any kind of kind relationship with the animal. And when that happens, you're likely to get kicked. <laughs> <laughs> it's likely to be a negative experience. Um, there's some things we just have to do in life to get along and survive. They're not fun. They're not like a joy that, you know, you don't, I don't like to mow my lawn, but I have to do that sometimes. It's just mm. part of life. But one thing that I can do as a person who wants to live a life of love is to ask the question, how does my mowing the lawn affect myself and others? Um, in the case of grass, I don't think grass has feelings, but in the case of animals, I think they do. Um, how am I going to act in ways that promote their well-being? And, and I don't want to paint myself as, you know, some Mother Teresa who does it right all the time. I'm definitely not that. But there is something, there's something deeply satisfying with approaching even the mundane tasks of life mm. with a sense that what I'm doing in some strange way makes the world a better place if I do it with a particular kind of attitude or approach to the value of, of what's going on. Hmm. Well, this has been a year, I would say, of learning how to attune oneself to the mundane. Um, <laughs> well, has, um, you know, and I don't want to 
paint too uh, glossy a picture over what we've learned from the pandemic, but has anything shifted in you in this year? I don't know if it's shifted, but uh, this is probably not going to be anything, you know, grand and revelatory for everyone, but <laughs> um, boy, I sure noticed the importance of relationships and, um, you know, I'll, I'll be very vulnerable. A year and a half ago, Christmas time, before the pandemic hit, I was spending the majority of my time on the road speaking at various places. And at Christmas time, I told my wife that the first time in my whole life, I was a lonely person. Mm. I spent a lot of time with people, but not the kind of close connectedness that I that I needed. And um, that was just kind of the function of my life at that time. The pandemic hit and all my speaking engagements <laughs> ground to a halt. And uh, my wife, who's a school teacher, wasn't in school. So we were together every day sitting at our table with our computers. Yeah. And um, that was really a positive thing um, there's a lot of negative that's come from the pandemic. I'm not going to deny that. I think the world would have been better without it. But there's also been some good things for me. And one of them is realizing the importance of relationships and spending time with my wife to uh, overcome my, my problem with uh, feeling lonely. Mm. I think that resonates with uh, a lot of people that we can find ourselves at a point in life um, where we've been pursuing our dreams or doing what we need to do. And, and when we're given that unexpected pause, it can help us to just take a breath and recenter, mm -hmm. take stock. Mm. So we are moving into um, a year where you'll be seeing people face to face again. <laughs> <laughs> Will you be showing up a little differently or are you recharged and, and ready to go out there and, and share your wisdom with others again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to interacting more. Uh, you know, here in Idaho, we're a, we're a pretty red state. And so people haven't exactly taken the pandemic as seriously as, <laughs> as a lot of other places. Yeah. So uh, um, while our typical ways of being have been changed some ways where people are already i wouldn't say we're totally back to normal but you know there's a lot of interacting going on um but i'm i'm eager to see people beyond my community <laughs> yeah. and uh, i'm looking forward to that i want to give you a chance to uh, tell folks where to find you and i know you have a new book coming out this summer uh open and relational theology an introduction to life-changing ideas that's a beautiful bold title uh yeah. tell people about what you're working on and how they can learn more about uh what you're writing and and talking about yeah thanks for asking uh this book is uh, as you mentioned is an introduction to this way of doing theology that sounds really radical to some people but a whole lot of other people say well that's kind of the way i've always been thinking <laughs> mm -hmm. but uh, i'm giving some perhaps words to that way of thinking and it's it's written for a wide audience so you know you don't have to be a theology nerd to understand it um, i'm really eager for that to come out this summer mm. um if people want to find out about open and relational theology i would encourage them to Google that title and 
and you can find the center, which uh, has lots of resources, has a picture of someone named Beth Hayward there, along with hundreds of other people who um, are supporting this kind of venture. Uh, so if you're curious, uh, that's a great place to go as a resource. Wonderful. I just thanks for showing up today and, and bringing your heart to the conversation. It's been lovely uh, to be with you, Tom. Thank I've you. I've enjoyed it too. Thanks for the opportunity. You've been listening to Souls in Souls. I'm the Reverend Beth Hayward. If you want to connect further, be sure to check us out at canadianmemorial.org. Like this podcast, share it with others, and you can learn more about Thomas Ord on his website, thomasjord.com. Thanks for joining us. We drop an episode every couple of weeks. Until next time.